All right, good evening. Uh, so we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 30 tonight, but we're going to read verses 17 through the end of chapter 5, uh, just to establish the, the context of, of what we're in, uh, and then we'll cover those verses uh, tonight. So let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll read our passage and begin begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time to be together tonight, and Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, Lord, knowing that it is through the word of Christ that you have, uh, by your spirit, given life, Lord, that this is how you bring uh, those who are dead in their sin, uh, Lord, you bring them back to life through the power of your word, and Lord, we pray that we would have a very high view of scripture, Lord, that we would not uh, be quick to dismiss any part of the word, but rather we would be humble. Lord, that we would have meekness, that we would approach your word, Lord, desiring to be taught, Lord, to run in the pathway of your commandments. And so, Lord, we pray that you teach us tonight. Lord, teach us, uh, Lord, how to rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, teach us that what you require and what you desire of man is not merely our external obedience, Lord, but the very center of who we are, Lord, that you desire our hearts. Lord, that we would be faithful and true to you in all of our being. And so, Lord, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart. Lord, renew a steadfast uh, mind within us. And that, Lord, you would cause us both inside and out, Lord, to love you and to want to be obedient to you and faithful to you in all things. So, Lord, teach us tonight from your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 17 and we'll read through the end of the chapter because... Uh, verse 17, what we finished last week, 17 to 20, establishes this view that Christ has concerning the relationship of himself to the law and the prophets or to the Old Testament or the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, and this is extremely important because most heresies uh, have as some part of their false teaching a distortion, a misunderstanding of the relationship between the Old and New Testament. So this is common uh, with those who are teaching falsehood is to try to pit the Bible against the Bible, make one part contradict another so that they can then excuse those things that they don't like, right? They don't like, and this is how men like to stand above the word of God uh, instead of submitting themselves to the word of God. That's the proper approach that we come under God's word and then we conform our life to what the Word of God says, our mind and our life to the Word of God, instead of approaching the Bible and making the Bible conform to what we want it to say and what we want to believe. That's the wrong view uh, because it puts us over the Word of God and we stand as a judge over the Lord uh, and we are proclaiming that our wisdom and understanding is greater than God's. And so we don't want to do that because that's not going to go well on the day of judgment. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here, having established this proper view of the word of God in scriptures, namely that Jesus says, he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather he has come to fulfill them. And he pronounces both a curse and a blessing. A curse for those who relax one of the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same. And then a blessing upon those who teach the commandments and then also teach others to, be, to do the same, that they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he proclaims that our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And if it does not, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the rest of this is showing in what way our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we know that they do all their righteous deeds to be seen by others, that they have a form of self-righteousness, of external righteousness in adherence to man-made traditions and human commandments, right? This is what they are doing 
and people will see that and many will conclude that they are very righteous people. However, Jesus, later on in Matthew, in Matthew 23, when he's exposing them, talks about how they're like a, a cup that is clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's filthy. It's full of greed and unrighteousness and all sorts of evil. Or like a, a plate that is clean on one side, but filthy on the other. Or like a tomb, a whitewashed tomb, right? It's white. It looks clean because it's a, a whitewashed tomb, but it's full of dead men's bones. And this is what they are like. So while they may have some external righteousness, though that is not true righteousness, right? It is in and of itself false because any righteousness that is not proceeding from a true heart, a sincere heart, is itself false righteousness. It's self-righteousness. It has no value at all. But the righteousness that is pleasing to God is that which begins on the inside, in the heart, and then manifests itself outwardly in the person. So that both the in and the outward are in conformity together, and this is the righteousness that we must have that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It is the righteousness that is the result of the new man, of the new nature, the change that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of Christ converts a man and takes and implants the very righteousness of Christ into that person, the result of that change is a complete reversal of their life, a complete conversion in a new creature that walks in newness of life, so that they have internal righteousness and they have external righteousness. And this is what must be true of us. And that's what he's teaching throughout the rest of this chapter, right? He's teaching that we must have both of these, right? We should neither murder, nor should we be angry. We should neither commit adultery, the outward act, but also we should not lust, right? We should not swear falsely, but we also should be truthful in everything that we do, and we should be honest and not dishonest. And that's what he's dealing with here. Now, the issue that he's addressing is this false interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees of the Old Testament. Now, there are those today who want to say that what Jesus is teaching here is a new ethic, a new higher spirituality. This is as we mentioned uh, on Sunday, that there are those who say that the Ten Commandments were a physical law for a physical people, but now in the New Covenant, we need a spiritual law for a spiritual people. And the ethic or the standard, the morality of the new covenant is greater and higher than that of the old covenant. So in the Old Testament, you just weren't supposed to murder. But now we know that you're not supposed to be angry. And in the Old Testament, you just weren't supposed to commit adultery, the physical act of adultery. But now in the New Testament, we know that you're also not supposed to lust. But this is ridiculous. It's nonsense. They would say in the Old Testament, you could hate your enemy and you only had to love your neighbor. But now we know that we need to love both our enemies and our neighbors. But this is ridiculous because we'll see this and we'll make pains to prove it. All of these are taught in the Old Testament as well. Anger, lust, loving your enemy, right? These things are not new novel concepts that no one knew about before the time of Christ. All of these things are taught in the Old Testament, so what Jesus is doing is correcting what the false teachers are promoting in his own day. 
they're teaching half-truths. Half-truths, but they're presenting them as if this is what God requires and that this is all that God requires. But when these half-truths are presented as though they are full, complete truths, they are nothing but lies. They are lies and deceptions that come from the devil and they have a masquerade. They have a show of being consistent with the word of God, but not completely. They're not complete and they are not honest. So when Jesus says, you have heard from of old, then he quotes from the Old Testament. But what he's addressing is that when this is quoted commonly in his own day, they're not applying it correctly. They're not taking it to the proper conclusion, right? That's the problem. Is all that it says is do not murder, right? But implied in the commandment not to murder is more of a requirement of what God requires of man. So it's not merely do not murder. It's not merely do not take innocent life. And as long as you don't actually kill someone, then you fulfill the commandment not to murder, the sixth commandment. Or when he says, do not commit adultery. Yes, that is true. But what does that mean, right? What does the seventh commandment mean? Does it mean just merely do not commit the physical act of adultery? Well, certainly it does mean that, but does it mean more than that, right? Is that all that it means or is there more that God requires? And that's what he's showing here, that God requires not only conformity in our outward actions. So yes, we should not commit adultery. We should not lie. We should not murder people, right? But God also requires the heart. And all of these sins begin not in our hands, not in our feet, but they all begin where? They begin in the heart. And if the heart is corrupted, if the heart is full of anger and full of lust and full of lies, even while a person may not be acting upon those things externally, outwardly in these grave sins, then that person is still committing sin against God and he's not pure and he is not right before the Lord. So that's what he's doing here. He's exposing false interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees and then teaching the true interpretation of Moses and the prophets. And what he's teaching is also found in Moses and the prophets. So it's not new. He's simply restating, reestablishing what had been taught before but what had been lost or forgotten, this is back to Malachi 4.4, 4, what had been forgotten because of false teachers, right? That's what false teachers do. They cause us to forget the true interpretation or they make everything so cloudy and confusing that we don't know what to believe, right? And we need clarity and that's what Jesus gives us here. So let's go back and we'll pick up in verse 21. 21 says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Here he says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, right? Those of old here being Moses and the prophets. Does Moses teach you shall not murder? Is that a commandment that comes from the 10 holy commandments of God? And the answer is yes. Moses did teach that you should not murder. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. This is when this commandment 
is inscripturated in this form in the Ten Commandments. But even here, before it was written on Mount Sinai by Moses, it was already known in practice from the very beginning of time. Right? That this was obvious, plain. This is part of natural law. Natural law teaches this, and people knew that murder was wrong even before it was written by Moses in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, we'll actually just read all the Ten Commandments. We'll start in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So there, verse 13, you shall not murder. So that's what Jesus quotes. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And then whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That the with the commandment is a corresponding expectation of punishment. That if you transgress this commandment, then you will be liable to judgment. And what is the judgment, the punishment, that the law of God requires for those who are murderers? It requires death. It requires death. This is taught, for example, in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 in verse 6. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So if you shed the blood of man, then by man shall his blood be shed. Right? By proper authorities, by proper governing authorities, who have the power of the sword, according to Romans chapter 13, then God expects them, whoever is the authority, whatever municipality or however that government is taking place, he expects man to shed the blood of the man who shed the blood of man, right? So if you take innocent life, then your life should be forfeited. God requires life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life when it comes to justice. This is the proper penalty and punishment for those who are murderers. So here, is this a true statement, what Jesus is quoting? Is this consistent with the Old Testament? You shall not murder, 
and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But again, is the commandment not to murder, the sixth commandment, is it merely teaching us not to take innocent life? But is it also forbidding all of those things that lead up to, that precede the shedding of innocent blood? Right, Because it's not like someone just goes out and kills someone randomly and there's nothing that comes before that. Right, And the primary thing that comes before the shedding of innocent blood is anger. Anger, uh, jealousy, envy, rivalry, wrath, right? These types of things, these motives, right? These desires of the heart, they are in a man before he actually goes and sheds the blood of man. And the commandment not to murder includes all of those attitudes, all of those desires, the lusts that are in the heart that would lead a man to commit this grave act of sin against God. And that's why Jesus says, but I say to you, right? I'm telling you that this is the proper interpretation of the law of Moses and of the sixth commandment that you shall not murder. And what is the proper interpretation? What does God require? Not that we, not only do we not shed innocent blood, but also if you're angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. Doesn't anger precede murder? So if you're angry unjustly, but you don't murder the person, have you kept the sixth commandment? No, you've kept it in that you didn't shed blood and that's better than shedding the innocent blood. But the attitude, the desire was in your heart. You had murder in your heart, even though fear of punishment may have kept you from acting upon this. So if you're angry at your brother, you're liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever insults him, again, in an unjust way, right? Unjustly, he's, uh, he's carping toward his brother. He's insulting him. He's slandering him. He's saying horrible things about him, right? He's going to be liable to the council, right? If he's doing this, if he's slandering the good name of his brother and doing so and insulting him, to other people, well, then he's going to be held accountable for that, right? There's going to be uh, repercussions for him doing that. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever calls his brother a fool, again, unjustly, right? When it's not a just calling of a person a fool. There are times when it's necessary and just to call someone a fool when they're behaving like a what? like a fool, right? Then you have to, you have to say that, but this is not coming from righteousness. This is calling someone a fool, insulting someone that's proceeding from wrath, from anger, right? From rage, right? The man is just blowing off steam. He's exploded. He has no self-control. And this is common, isn't it? Don't people get mad? Don't they get angry? And then when their temper flares up, what do they start doing? they start spewing out whatever comes to the top of their mind, right? And they begin to curse. They begin to insult. They say horrible things about people that they may not have done whenever they're in their right mind. But because they don't have self-control, when their anger gets stirred up, when their temper rises, right? They'll say he's hot-headed, right? Or he has a hot temper. And typically when someone has a hot temper, then they have an open mouth, right? Their mouth and their tongue is free and it just flows out all sorts of filth. Well, that filth that's coming out of the mouth, where's it coming from? 
Where's it originating? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He has all of this in his heart, this anger, this rage, and then he starts spewing it out of his mouth. But can you say that person has not committed murder simply because he didn't take that man's life when he's said all these horrible things about him? No, he's guilty of breaking the spirit of the sixth commandment, right? The internal aspect of the sixth commandment, and he's guilty before God. And God requires not only that we don't shed innocent life, but also that we have control over our passions, that we have control over our temper, right? That we don't let our temper lead us into sin so that we sin with our mouth and we say these types of things. That's what God requires. And that's what God has always required from the very beginning. From the very beginning, this was God's expectation. Not only that we don't murder with our hands, but also that we don't murder in our heart, in our mind, or with our tongue. Because when we do this, when we say these kinds of things about a person, or when we slander a person, are we not murdering his good name? Are we not killing his good name, his reputation before other people? Isn't the name of a man something that is very valuable? To have a good name, to have an honorable name, for people to hold you in high regard? But if someone goes around slandering you as a malicious witness, saying these types of things, then he ruins your reputation. He murders your good name in the eyes of other people. And this is not just and right. Okay, a couple of examples of this being taught and known in the Old Testament. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 4. I mean, literally... Day one of your Bible reading calendar would be enough to know that this is what God requires. Day one, you know, everyone makes it through day one because the new year comes, everyone commits to reading the Bible, and it's usually <laughs> mid-January or late January before people fall off. So they always get through Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four and verse one. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So there, Cain is, he's angry. He's angry because of what has transpired, but he's not angry at the right person. Right. Who should he be angry at? Self. He should be angry at himself, right? which should lead him to repent, but he's not. He's angry at God and he's angry at his brother because his brother's righteousness is exposing his own unrighteousness. He's angry and his face has fallen and the Lord confronts him and says, why are you angry, right? You have no legitimate just reason to have this anger inside of you. Don't you know that if you do well, if you do what's right in the sight of God, then you'll be accepted, Right, if you do it in the proper way. But if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, and it wants to rule 
over you, right? The sin that is there in your heart is seeking to destroy you, right? It wants to, which is the way we have to view sin. Sin wants to destroy us. It's at the door. It wants to rule us. It wants to master us. And sin is not content to stay in the heart. It wants to manifest itself in our words and in our deeds. And isn't that what happened then with Cain? What does he do then? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So, what came first? The physical act of murder or the anger in the heart? It was anger. Anger led to murder. Right? And isn't that clearly taught here in Genesis chapter 4? That both the act of murder is a sin, but also what preceded the act of murder, the anger of the heart, is also a sin, and that we should reject both of them. So there in the Old Testament, clearly taught that both of them are sin. Also, Jonah. Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Verse 1. This is after Nineveh repents. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, Nineveh repents and then God relents of the disaster he was going to bring upon them. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So there, Jonah has anger, and God is confronting him, saying, Do you do well? Do you have a legitimate, just reason to have this anger that is within you? So there, God is confronting him for the anger that is within. Also, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15, which is teaching uh, the life of faith, right? The life of faith, faith without works is dead. Well, what kind of works should we do? Well, Proverbs is telling us how it is that we live a life pleasing to God, a life of wisdom. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And then verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So there, anger, harsh words, hot temper, right? these are set in contrast to the one who is soft in his answer, who's slow to anger. Right? He's not saying he's a liar or he doesn't speak the truth. Of course he speaks the truth, but he does so in a soft, in a gentle way so as not to provoke and not to stir up anger. He has control. This is the difference between the righteous and the wicked or the wise man and the fool, right? The wise man has control over his passions. He has self-control, which is a fruit of what? Fruit of the Holy Spirit within him. 
He has control over his passions, over his temper, right, over his anger, so that it does not rule him and cause him to commit sins with his words, while the foolish man, he has no restraint, no control over his passions, and he's hot-tempered, and then he just spews out whatever comes to his mouth, and does that help the situation? No, it only exasperates it, right? It only exasperates it, and it actually makes it worse and worse. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So there, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry, because anger is indicative of a fool, right? This is how a fool behaves, right? And many times the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? This is typically the case. Now, again, there are exceptions when there is righteous anger, right? Righteous anger, such as Moses, when he went out from, from Pharaoh's presence and he went out with hot anger from his presence, or Jesus, when he looked around at them with anger, right, because of the hardness of their heart, as it says, when he was being confronted or uh, by his critics. So there are times when there is righteous anger when it's for the right reasons, right? That being the righteousness of God, the glory of God, the hardness of heart, the unbelief of man. But many times anger, as it comes from man, is not proceeding from the Spirit, but it's proceeding from our flesh and it's not good. So that's what Jesus is dealing with here, right? Don't murder, but also don't be angry. Also, don't insult your brother. Also, don't call him a fool. And if you do any of these things and you practice these things, whether you go all the way and commit the actual deed of murder, you're going to be liable to the judgment of God. And if you call him a fool, you're going to go to hell is what he's saying. If you're calling your brother a fool unjustly, you're going to go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying because it shows that you are completely overcome with anger and you have no self-control and no self-restraint. Now, not one other quick uh, cross-reference. Matthew 23. Here, Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. But he has to mean that in an unjust sense, right? Not that there's never a time to call a man a fool, to call a man a son of the devil, to call a man an enemy of righteousness, right? To say, I wish you would emasculate yourself. Uh, there are times when it is proper and right to say those things. And even Jesus called people fools. And when he called men fools, was he sinning? And was he violating his own standard here? No. So he expects us to understand the difference between calling someone a fool unjustly and calling someone a fool in a just way. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 17. Uh, it says, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? So there, Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees blind fools. Now, this is not a sin because what were they? They were blind fools, right? This is an accurate description of what they were. 
And that's why he labels them according to their character and according to what they were teaching. So he's not doing it unjustly. He's doing it justly. And in the same way, there are times when it's necessary to label people according to what they're doing. Also, Proverbs 26, 2. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 2. says, like a sparrow in its flitting and like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. So a curse that is without cause or causeless does not alight. Right? God doesn't pay heed to it. That would be the same as here when you're calling someone a fool. If you call someone a fool and it's causeless, you're going to be liable to the hell of fire. If you call someone a fool and there is a cause for that, then you're not going to be liable to the hell of fire, right? The same as with the curse. Okay, back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Okay, so here we should not be angry, right? He's, he's uh, correcting, he's showing us this is what we should not do. We need to put off the old man, right? Put off murder, put off anger, Put off using our words rashly, right? Put off insulting people unjustly. Don't do those kinds of things. But rather than how should we live, right? What should be our attitude toward our fellow man? Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So how should we be? Well, we should seek to live at peace with men. We should seek to be reconciled to men as far as it's possible with us, as far as we can. As much as it depends on us, we should live at peace with all men. And even if you are at the temple, even if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, right? Now, again, this isn't something illegitimate against you, but something legitimate. You have sinned against your brother, and he has a legitimate claim against you, a legitimate offense against you, and it comes to your attention that I sinned against my brother in what I said to him and what I did to him. And now this is in your mind. It comes to your attention. How important is it that we go and be reconciled to our brother? Well, he says, leave your gift at the altar. Leave your gift there and go be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift to God. This is how important it is that we be reconciled. If we sin against our brother, that we don't hold it, that we don't uh, be embittered toward him, that we don't brush it off, that we don't say it's no big deal, right? I'm just going to go on my way and it's not in my mind. No, we shouldn't be like that. We should seek peace and want to live in harmony with our brother. And if the reason me and my brother, our relationship is fractured 
and there's no harmony there. There's no unity there. It's been, there's upheaval in our relationship and it's my fault because of the sin that I committed. Then I need to go do whatever I can in order to rec- rec- uh, reconcile and rectify the situation. Now, if he's unwilling to forgive me, then it's on him. But I've done my part. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And then his obligation is to do what? Is to forgive. This is the way it is. If we sin against someone, we should go repent and ask for their forgiveness. And if someone sins against us and they come and they ask for our forgiveness, then we should forgive them just as our father in heaven has forgiven us. And how many times should we forgive them? 70 times seven, right? If they do it seven times a day, then you forgive them seven times a day. This is the way that we should be seeking to live, not in anger, right? Not in rage, right? Not uh, in this violent way toward our brother, but living in peace and harmony and unity one with another. This is the way that Christ expects us to live. Romans chapter 12 And it's very important because if we don't come to terms with our brother, if we've sinned against our brother and we know that we've sinned against them, but we're so arrogant and proud that we refuse to go and repent, then what's going to happen to us on the day of judgment? Right? Our accuser that we've sinned against is going to drag us to God and God's going to throw us in prison until we pay the last penny, right? That's what he means. You're going to be held. You're, because a person who is so arrogant that he refuses to ever admit that he sinned and refuses to repent right, is evident that he doesn't have the spirit of Christ within him and that he does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So if possible, as far as it depends on you, that's what he's saying here. You've sinned, you remember, okay, then you go do something about it. Now it's up to him to forgive you. And if he won't forgive you, there's nothing you can do about that. But you do whatever you can do. As far as it depends on you, you do your duty, your obligation, and then the rest is up to him. But this is how we should be living peaceably with all men. An example of this from the Old Testament. Genesis 32, the impractical Old Testament, right? No way, it's not impractical at all. It's very practical. Genesis chapter 32, this is Jacob with Esau. Jacob with Esau. Also, we notice it's believer with unbeliever because Esau was an unbeliever. But notice how Jacob behaves toward his brother. Even though his brother was also in the wrong, but Jacob is the one who seeks to bring harmony and unity and peace there in the family. Genesis 32 verse 1 says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. 
I have sent to tell my Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered or multiplied. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servant, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So here, Jacob and Esau, when he left his father's house, Jacob, there was conflict, right? Conflict, hostility. Esau wanted to kill him. Now he's coming back many years later, and he's knowing he's going to have to face his brother, but he's seeking to have harmony. He doesn't want there to be war. He doesn't want to fight with his brother. He doesn't want there to be the shedding of blood. Now, even though in many ways, now there were things that Jacob did in the deception and those things that were wrong, but Esau had the greater blame in what happened between him and Jacob. And yet Jacob is the one who's going above and beyond in order to bring peace and harmony between the two brothers by giving to him Right. This isn't an insignificant gift. This is a, a very, very, he's giving him a lot of wealth in order to appease him, right? In order to show he has no ill will toward him. He's harboring no grudge against him, that he wants peace. He wants harmony as much as possible between him and his brother. So this is what Jacob does because he knows that it's good and right to live in this kind of a way in this kind of a way. Now, again, that, of course, doesn't mean that you overlook sin, and it didn't mean that Jacob wanted to live next door to Esau uh, because he didn't want to do that because he knew that Esau was an unbeliever and he knew that his people would be unbelieving people, so he didn't want to intermingle with them, but he did want to be able to dwell peacefully with his brother since they were going to be in the same area or the same territory of land. Okay, verse 27. Verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So here, the issue is lust, adultery, right? What does the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, what does it entail? Does it simply mean do not commit the physical act of adultery? Well, it, it certainly does mean that, but it means more than that, right? More is expected, more is required by God. And even if we only had the Ten Commandments, it's obvious that this is included within the Ten Commandments. Because if we look back at Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, the last commandment is not dealing with an external. The last commandment is dealing with the heart. And what does it mean to covet your neighbor's wife other than to lust for her, right? To desire her that does not belong to you. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, what is it to covet your neighbor's wife than to lust after her? Isn't that what precedes the actual committing of adultery? That there is the thought, the impure thought that comes from the heart that's in the mind. And then if that thought is not crucified and put to death, then that thought and that desire will seek to manifest itself outwardly in this form of sin against God. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which is true. But I say, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery against her in his heart, in his heart. And again, what is the more important part? The heart, the heart is all the issues of life flow out of the heart. This is why we are to guard our heart with all diligence. And God desires first the heart, then the hands, then the feet, then the eyes, then the hands, then everything else with us. But the heart is central, it is primary to doing what is pleasing and right in the sight of God. Well, if we don't commit the physical act, but our heart is filled with lust, our mind is filled with impure thoughts, then can we say legitimately that we've kept the commandment not to commit adultery? And Jesus is saying, no. If you are lusting after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her, right? It's already taken place in your heart. Now, at that point, we shouldn't say, well, I've already done it in my heart. I might as well do it outwardly as well. No, who thinks like that other than an unbeliever? No, we shouldn't do that. We should say, Lord, created me a clean heart. Give me a pure heart. Lord, I don't want to have these thoughts, right? I don't want to have these desires. Please purify me of these things so that I might do what is good and right in your sight. Genesis chapter three, a couple of examples where this is obviously taught and expected in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, this isn't speaking uh, directly to lust, 
but it is dealing with desire, desire and looking at something with the eye and desiring it in the heart. Chapter three, verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. But isn't that what's true of lust? A delight to the eyes? People are looking with their eyes and they're lusting. They're, de they're delighting in that, not in a good way, but in a sinful way, an evil way, right? Fulfilling these evil desires of the flesh, right? The flesh delights in sin. So when the person is lusting, they're looking with their eyes and they're delighting in a woman that does not belong to them. Or if it's a woman, she's delighting in a man that does not belong to her. It's forbidden. Forbidden because they're not married, right? They're not married. And whether it's another man's wife or that whether they're unmarried, whatever it is, this is to be rejected and we're not to lust in that way. Job chapter 31. Job chapter 31. Job, who we know was a righteous man, a true believer, a man of faith a man who lived a godly life, God's own testimony of Job is a high commendation of what his character was like. And notice Job chapter 31, verse one. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all of my steps? So there, Job knows that not only should he not commit adultery, the physical act, but he also, he doesn't want to gaze at a virgin, right? A young woman, right? With lustful intent in his eyes. So what does he do? He made a covenant with his eyes. He made a covenant with his eyes that he was not going to use his eyes to commit sin against God and to have these kinds of impure desires. Genesis 34. Genesis 34. And most scholars believe that Job was a contemporary around the time of Abraham, right? So before even the time of Moses, before the giving of the law, Job knew and understood that you should not look in a lustful way at a young virgin. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Notice there, before he committed the act of sin, he first saw her, saw her. So what preceded the act was the seeing, right? Seeing with lust. He lusted for her in his heart. He committed adultery in his heart. Then he committed adultery in his actions. Also, Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6.
Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. Speaking of the adulterous woman, warnings against the adulterous woman. 625, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. So don't desire her beauty in your heart, right? That would be what? That's lust, right? Don't lust after her. So there, clearly, lust is forbidden, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, right? In that you cannot say that you've kept the seventh commandment if you are breaking it in your heart and in your mind. So the men shouldn't be lusting for the women. The women shouldn't be lusting for the men. The women shouldn't be dressing in a way that encourages men to lust. The men should not be dressing in a way that encourages the women to lust, right? We ought to dress in a modest way so as not to draw attention to our bodies, right? In that, in a way that's provoking lust. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a bath or comb our hair or shave and be presentable, right? Of course, there's nothing wrong with that or even beautifying ourselves in a way that makes us presentable, but we shouldn't seek to draw attention to our body and especially those parts of the body that are prone to lust, right? We should not do those types of things because it's a violation of what Christ is teaching here. Okay, so don't lust. Then verse 29. How severe is this? How, how dangerous is it, right? How drastic should we treat not only this sin, but all sin? But here he's, he specifically connects this injunction to this commandment and to this sin. While this should be true of all sin, he does it here for a reason because the desire for lust for improper relations, for fornication and adultery is such a strong desire, right? It's such a strong desire. You have to take drastic measures against it. And that's what he's teaching here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members then that your whole body go into hell. Here, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what should you do to your right eye? Tear it out. He says, pluck it out, tear it out, throw it away. Right? Better to go to heaven with one eye than go to hell with two. Isn't that right? Yes. And if it's your right hand that causes you to sin, cut it off, he says. Throw it away. Get rid of it. It's better to go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two hands. Now, does Jesus mean literally that we are to mutilate our bodies? Of course not. He cannot, he cannot mean this, right? Because no one ever hated his own body, but he loves it. He cares for it. He cherishes it. So we're not to mutilate our body because ultimately is the problem the eye and is the problem the hand, right? The problem isn't the eye or the hand. The problem is the heart, right? That is what needs to be dealt with. And the problem is the temptations, the external temptations, right? We have enough problem with our own heart. There's nothing we can do about the flesh. We've got the flesh with us until the day that we die and we're gonna have to deal with it. So we have to deal with the flesh. It is a part of us. It's gonna be a part of us until the day we die. We have to fight it every single day. But what we don't want to do is pour gasoline on this fire that is already within us, 
right? Because if you pour gas on the fire, does it not make the fire burn hotter with more intensity? So whatever those things are that lead a person or cause a person to sin, that enliven and invigorate temptation within him, that give the flesh greater power over him, then get rid of those things. That's what he's saying. Take drastic measures in your life to get rid of those things that tempt you and lead you into sin because you've got enough to deal with anyway, just with the flesh and the world and the devil, right? We're never going to be able to completely get rid of all temptation, right? It's impossible. Even if we move to the moon, right? And live out there on the moon with Jeff Bezos, right? We're going to have to deal with that guy or someone else who's out there. Even if we're by ourselves, we're still going to have to deal with the flesh. It's always going to be there, but we don't have to go to the bars, right? We don't have to go to places where women are inappropriately dressed, right? We don't have to go to the beach, right? Where they're walking around in bikinis and doing those kinds of things. We don't have to go, right? If our, uh, if we sin with gluttony, we don't have to go to the golden corral, right? Where we're going to be tempted to stuff our face with all this food, right? Whatever the sin is that we're dealing with, then avoid those places, avoid those people, avoid those situations that are going to cause you to want to commit sin and take severe, drastic measures against it so that you don't commit sin against God. This is the approach we have to have towards sin. Now, who takes it this way? Hardly anybody. Right? Most people, it's not a big deal, right? It's not a big deal because it's all about grace and love and God will just forgive us. I'll commit my sin and then I'll ask God to forgive me and then we'll be all good. And this is the way that people live. But we can't be that way. We have to take measures to get rid of the sin. So if something causes us to sin, now, and when he says causes you to sin, he doesn't mean cause in the sense of it's holding a gun to our head and forcing us to do something that we don't want to do. He means cause in the sense that it is what instigates the sin, right? It is what enlivens the sin or tempts us to sin. But whenever we sin, who's ultimately at fault, right? We are. Yes, we do it of our own will because we desire. He means cause in the sense of when there is a tempter, an external tempter or something that tempts us, there is a sense in which that thing or that person causes us to sin because that thing or person is the external tempter that led to our sinning, such as Genesis chapter three, the serpent. When the serpent came into the garden, the serpent was the tempter that led Adam and Eve to commit sin against God. Now, again, he didn't force them to do something that they weren't unwilling to do, right? They did it willingly as well, but he was the one that was the agitator that instigated the sin that they committed. So whatever is the cause, then we need to avoid it as much as we can. Now, again, sometimes it's impossible. There are times when you're not going to be able to avoid uh, immodestly dressed woman, right? But there are also, we need to be wise. There are places where we know women are gonna be dressed immodestly. There are places that we know are going to be places of sin, right? Why would I want to go to Las Vegas? That's a, a hellhole on earth, right? That's all they're doing out there is committing sin. So why would I want to go to Las Vegas knowing how am I going to live a righteous life out there? Oh, but the hotels are really cheap, 
right? And the airfare is really cheap, right? And they have all these buffets out there and they have great shows. But why would I want to go there? Because I know there's going to be many temptations to sin. Oh, but, but aren't we going to miss out? No, we're, miss out on hell? I don't want to, I do want to miss out on hell. So no, I don't want to go there. So avoid that place, right? Or whatever else that it might be. Okay, a couple of passages. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. And even if it's a friend, a person, even sometimes it may be a family member. Well, if they're causing us to sin, then we have to get away from them. We have to cut them off and say that you are my friend, but I can't be around you anymore because when I'm with you, you lead me to sin. And I want you to repent because I want to remain your friend. But if you're not, then I can't have this close friendship with you anymore or a family member, whatever it is. Luke 17, verse one, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So temptation to sin, it's sure to come. It's going to come. It's inevitable. That's going to happen. It's impossible for us to avoid all temptations to sin. But he says, woe to the one through whom they come. The one who is the tormentor, the one who is the instigator to sin, he is going to have a great judgment upon him. It's better for you to be dead, to kill yourself, than to cause someone to sin. That's how serious we have to take it okay another example of this an actual well, example first kings chapter 12 first kings chapter 12 okay first kings chapter 12 and verse 25. Actually, we'll read we'll read verse 33. It says that he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is Jeroboam when he makes his golden calves. Okay, so he creates this false religion. He makes these golden calves. He institutes this feast for the people of Israel to keep them from going down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Then notice what it says in chapter 13, verse 33. Chapter 13, verse 33. It says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from this evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people, any who would be ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it, from the face of the earth. Then chapter 14 and verse 16. It says, And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then chapter 15 and verse 25. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. 
So there, it says of Jeroboam that Jeroboam made Israel to sin. Now, it doesn't mean that the people weren't culpable. Certainly, they were willing participants, but he made them sin and that he's the one that devised it. He's the one that instituted it. He's the one that encouraged them and led them to sin against God. And in that way, he caused them to sin, right? He made them to sin. Then one last passage, 2 Kings chapter 18. We have an example here of a righteous king and what he did to, he, this is him plucking out his right eye or cutting off his right hand. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until the days the people of Israel had made offering to it. So here, Hezekiah tore down the high places, he broke down the pillars, he cut down the Asherah, and even the bronze serpent that Moses had made, that was originally made for a good purpose, but the people had taken and turned it into an evil thing, what did he do to it? He cut it up as well. So what's Hezekiah doing? He's cutting off his right hand. He's plucking out his right eye. Whatever these sources of sin in the land are, he's removing them. He's getting rid of them so that that source of temptation is no longer there so that the people will worship God properly. And in that way, he's taking drastic measures to get rid of sin so that he himself won't be tempted but also so the people won't be tempted either. Similar to what Josiah does later in 2 Kings chapter 23, when he goes and removes high places, cuts down these things, overturns the altars, he does all, deposes the priests. Whatever was a source of temptation, he removed it from the land so that the people would not be made to sin. Jeroboam made them sin, and then they removed the sources of sin that were instituted by these wicked kings. And in that way, they're taking drastic measures against sin. And this is what we need to do as well in our own personal lives, in our homes, in our churches, and then whatever influence we can have in society to remove sources of sin and temptation, then we should do that as well. And that would be good for everyone. Okay. Like, wouldn't it be good if we could get rid of all these marijuana shops, right, in, in Oklahoma? Wouldn't that be better for people to not have that temptation? It would be. Or what about the casinos? Get rid of all of them. And then people wouldn't be tempted to gamble. Now, will people still want to gamble? Yeah, but they'll have to go somewhere else and do it. It won't be in our face all the time. So it'll be better. Okay, so we'll stop there tonight. And uh, we've got uh, a few minutes, I think, uh, for any questions.